We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. This is DeMar DeRozan time. Left wing three, around the rim and got a three ball for DeRozan. And folks, in 36 minutes, DeMar DeRozan has 35 on 15 to 25 from the floor. Guys, he never did that 35 and, and 50% for, uh, uh, Mike, Mike, yeah, that Michael did. Yeah, 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 I'm surprised. I'm, like I'm saying, like all these records is new to me. You know what I mean? It's nothing that I try to set out to try to have or I know is out there. You know, I know Will Chamberlain got 100 points. It's not like I'm going out there trying to get 101. You know, so when it comes to your record, really, I really be having no clue. I really try to go out there and just play as efficient and as best basketball as I can. Chuck and Bill on the call right here on 670. The score as they are for every Bulls game and the entire second half and all the playoff action you'll catch with Chuck and Bill right here on 670. The score and then DeMar DeRozan talking about his 38-point performance against the Kings in that win. His eighth game in a row with 30 points or more. Longest streak by a Bulls since Michael Jordan in 1996. Yes, that Michael Jordan. Also a record-setting streak. You heard him talk about all these records of scoring 35 or more points on 50% or better shooting in seven straight games. He breaks Wilt Chamberlain's record of doing that six straight times. Joining me now to talk some Bulls, Rami Makhlouf with you on the score on a Thursday evening is Ricky O'Donnell, editor and writer at SB Nation. Ricky, how are you this evening? I'm good. How impressed have you been by what DeMar DeRozan has been doing in this recent streak here? Yeah, it's one of the most incredible things I've ever seen watching basketball. I really believe that. I thought DeRozan would be a good addition for the Bulls uh, on the three-year, $85 million contract they gave him this summer, but I don't think anyone expected him to be like this. Uh, averaging 28 points a game right now. He's doing it in a way that's basically unguardable. He's taking the shots the opposing defense wants him to take, and he's hitting them at a ridiculous rate. He's able to score without a screen. He's able to score with a screen. Uh, he'll pick out bigger defenders, smaller defenders. It really doesn't matter who's guarding DeMar DeRozan. You saw it last night against the Kings. They have a bunch of long, active defenders, and DeMar was still splashing 17-foot jumpers in their face again and again down the court. So I can't say enough about DeRozan's veteran presence, his poise and crunch time, his ability to avoid turnovers, and just his ridiculously efficient shooting. I feel honored to have watched basically every game of this DeMar DeRozan season and have him on the ball. And you're right. He's, he's far and away exceeded, I think, almost anybody's expectations when the Bulls signed him. We, we knew they were getting a, a pretty good player, but, but not, not this guy – and I don't know if this makes me a wet blanket or not, Ricky, but 
whenever a guy is playing so far above the expectations, or you might say above his head, I, I tend to have this voice in the back of my mind that goes, okay, but where's the regression? When does he start to go back? And still, like I said, a very good basketball player. But when does he start to go back to the other end of the spectrum and, and more of what we expected of him? Is that something I should be wondering or worrying about? Or do you think that this is real? Yeah, I think it's fair. I mean, he's 32 years old and he's having his best season of his career. And this was a guy who was already, you know, a three-time all-star, I think coming to the franchise. So, of course, he's going to regress at some point. The Bulls have to feel pretty good about that three-year contract they gave him, though. Uh, right now, he's got to be one of the most underpaid stars in the NBA. Like, if, if anyone not on a rookie contract, DeRozan making $27 million a year is probably one of the most underpaid guys in the league, which is crazy because everyone smart who read about the, read about the NBA at the time of the signing said he'd be one of the most overpaid guys. So, I do think it's a little bit fair to expect some regression. Uh, DeRozan, if you've followed his career since the beginning, you know that the playoffs have always sort of been a bugaboo for him. That's going to be the big storyline for the team coming into the postseason is like, can DeMar finally conquer his playoff demons? But even if regression does come a little bit, I think what DeRozan's doing is sustainable. I mean, he's so smart. He's so under control. And he just has the mental aspect of the game down pat. Take someone like Zach Levine, for example. Obviously, Zach Levine you know, can jump out of the gym, uh, can shoot from anywhere on the court. He's one of the most purely talented players in the NBA. and uh, He's been a terrific second option, basically, this year for the Bulls. But we've seen over the last few seasons, Levine gets sped up a little bit in crunch time. He overthinks things. He gets a little flustered. That just doesn't happen to DeMar. I don't think that's going to happen to DeMar at any point in the postseason. The guy just has the perfect approach to the game. Uh, And at this point, you know, all opposing teams can really do to stop him is to throw double and triple teams at him. And we've seen the last couple nights that when that happens, DeMar just finds the open man, ball swings a couple times, finds Kobe White open for a three in the corner. Uh, He's automatic right now, so... I do think it's fair to expect a little bit of regression just because of his age, especially over the next couple seasons. But uh, I don't think this guy's going to slow down anytime soon. I mean, we're past the point of a small sample size, and uh, he only keeps getting better. Rami Makhlouf with you on the score on a Thursday evening. Ricky O'Donnell covers the Bulls and the NBA for SB Nation, my guest on the Circa Resort and Casino Hotline. I was, start, I was talking about at the start of the show, Ricky, about this, this most recent ESPN uh, NBA MVP straw poll where, where DeMar DeRozan actually dropped a spot from the last time that they did it in December from, from 6th to 7th in their in their mock NBA MVP voting. Most Vegas odds have him at around the 6th or 7th most likely to win the NBA MVP. Do you feel like that's, that's selling him a little bit short? Do you think he should be a little bit higher on that list? For sure. I did a similar... Uh, MVP rankings post. This is probably a month ago, and I had him fifth. I think he's probably only gone up since then, uh, especially given Steph Curry's had a prolonged shooting slump for a couple months now. But with that said, uh, DeMar's not going to win the MVP, I don't think. It's going to be Nikola Jokic or Joel Embiid or Giannis Antetokounmpo, and those three guys, in my opinion, should be ahead of DeMar. I do think DeMar should be in the quote-unquote MVP conversation, but you know, a better way to put that is that DeMar DeRozan should make first-team All-NBA. And that is a massive honor at the end of the year. Uh, maybe it's not as catchy as saying he's in the MVP conversation, but it is like a tangible thing we can look back on uh, a few years from now and, you know, see 
just how great DeRozan was. So I hope DeRozan makes first team all NBA. I think that uh, that would truly like stamp the greatness of his season. And uh, he deserves the honor at this point, in my opinion. Do you think it's it's almost un, unfortunate for him that he's having this season in this NBA season when when you look at really some some remarkable performances, namely from three guys in Giannis, Jokic, and Embiid, right? I think in a lot of years, DeMar DeRozan is maybe good enough to be the MVP or at least in, in the top three discussion. But this year, man, there's, he's just he's just up against some real stiff competition. For sure. Here's a hot take for you that will anger your listeners, I'm sure. I think this is the best non-Michael Jordan season in Bulls history. I'd put it above the D-Rose MVP season. I'd put it above Scottie Pippen in 94. I'd put it above Jimmy Butler his last year on the Bulls, which was uh, ridiculously proficient. But this D-Rose season, to me, tops all of them. I think you look at the team impact. This was a team that had the worst cumulative record in the NBA over the last four years. DeMar DeRozan was their key pickup in the offseason. It was widely panned by critics when they made the signing. And look at him now having the best season of his career at age 32. I think when you look at the specific areas of need that he addressed with the team, which was getting to the foul line consistently, not turning the ball over, uh, just giving them sort of a steady presence late in games, he's aced that. You could look at the fact that he's breaking Wilt Chamberlain's records for scoring over a five- or six-game period hit the two back-to-back buzzer beaters. I've never seen anything like this DeRozan season. He's not the best player in the NBA, but he is one of them. It's an absolutely incredible season that Bulls fans and Chicago sports fans in general shouldn't take for granted. Uh, The way this guy is ripping apart defenses is so reminiscent of Michael Jordan. And it sounds sacrilegious to say, but uh, basically no one else in the NBA scores from these parts of the floor that DeRozan's scoring from. It's all 17-foot jumpers. That's supposed to be out of the modern game, but DeRozan just doesn't miss. And When you don't miss, that's pretty efficient offense. I think it's the best non-MJ season in Bulls history. And uh, if he's not MVP, first-team All-NBA is a heck of an honor. And I agree with you that, you know, in some other years, what he's doing probably would be good enough to an MVP. What do you make of the, the Tristan Thompson signing? How much do you think he helps and, and contributes for this team down the stretch? Yeah, it's interesting. Like, obviously, they needed a backup five. Tony Bradley is extremely limited. Uh, so now you bring Thompson in the mix. I think what happens at the backup five in the playoffs is going to be one of the most interesting storylines facing the team. I believe it's going to be situationally. If you need more rim protection, I think, you know, Tony Bradley's 7'5", seven, 7'6", seven, wingspan, one of the longest players in the NBA. Uh, for as limited as he is in some aspects of the game, he can really block shots. And you notice that length and that wingspan time and time again in his short stints. So I think if you need shot blocking, you go Bradley. If you need rebounding, you go Tristan Thompson. His rebounding numbers per 100 possessions are about where they've been throughout his career. And he's been one of the best rebounders of this generation, particularly on the offensive glass. The Bulls are not very good on the offensive glass. That's because, they spend a lot of their energy getting back in transition defense, where they are pretty good. You can't have it both ways. Uh, but, you know, if they need help on the glass, I think Tristan Thompson's a good option there. And then if you want, like, the short roll playmaking, a little bit more juice off the bounce, I think you go Derek Jones Jr., who's never played center in his career before this season. Billy Donovan put him in there. I think around the time Vooch got COVID, they started experimenting with Jones as the backup five and I think he's been a revelation in that position. Between that and Javante Green, I think those were two really sharp coaching moves by Donovan sliding those guys up in the lineup. So I think it's going to be situational in terms of the backup center. I do think 
it's an issue facing the Bulls because uh, some of these teams are going to have more size and more depth in the front court. But Thompson's a decent addition on the buyout market. I think the buyout market is historically a little overrated in terms of the type of impact you're getting from guys. But uh, given what the Bulls were looking at, given how bad the end of the bench is right now with all the injuries, I think picking up Tristan's a pretty good move. Talking with Ricky O'Donnell, covers the Bulls and the NBA for SB Nation here. Rami Makhlouf with you on the score. Given given what you just, just said about the, the, the buyout market and how much value and impact there is actually out there, were you surprised that the Bulls stood pat at the trade deadline last week instead of going and getting somebody who maybe can, can help you a little bit more than a Tristan Thompson if that guy was out there? Yeah, I was a bit disappointed by that, but I mean, their hands were a bit tied given the injury situation. Like, who are you really going to trade that has any value? Well, you could trade Patrick Williams. I would have been in favor of that if you could have found a really good veteran addition who was going to buy into his role. I thought Jeremy Grant from the outside looked like he would have been perfect given his history with Karnaschovas and Billy Donovan. But it doesn't seem like Jeremy Grant wants to be the fourth option on the team. He wants to be the first option. He wants to get paid as a free agent again. That is totally fair. So when that sort of major upgrade was off the table, what are they really going to do? Trade Kobe White? They don't have any guards right now. Lonzo and Caruso are hurt for a month or six weeks. Uh, I don't think that really would have been a smart move. They could have traded Jones and Troy Brown and tried to, you know, find another guy to match their contracts. But what is unfortunate for Bulls fans is I believe they probably didn't do that because they don't want to take back long-term money because, Zach Levine's about to sign a $200 million max extension. The Reinsdorfs have been historically, of course, a little scared of the luxury tax, to put it lightly. So I think that might have been a reason they potentially didn't acquire someone as a trade deadline. But ultimately, they don't have that many tradable assets, especially with all the injuries throughout the depth chart. So uh, I agree it's disappointing they didn't get anyone. Thompson is a, he's a pretty good buyout guy, all things considered. So... Uh, the Bulls should feel good about how they match up against the best teams in the East, which is certainly a loaded field if they're fully healthy. And uh, that's basically all we can wait for right now is until this roster returns to full health, see how they can stack up against uh, the rest of the conference. Do, do you think they lost some ground, though, on, on some of the teams that, that I think most of us think will be battling for, 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 for the East when, when you talk about the Sixers and the Nets pulling the trade? of Harden for Simmons. The the Bucks go out and get Serge Ibaka to, to bolster their front court and add to their defense and, and three-point shooting. Do you think the Bulls lost some ground in the Eastern Conference with the trade deadline coming and going? Yeah, it's possible. I mean, the Sixers are a horrible matchup for the Bulls in the first place. The Bulls have literally never beaten Joel Embiid in his entire career. Granted, the Bulls were bad for most of that stretch, but still, Embiid's whooped them twice this year, and now they had James Harden. I think that makes Sixers, like they were not a title contender before that trade. Now, I, I personally believe they're definitely a title contender. I kind of think this knocks the Nets out in terms of a contender this year. Uh, unless Kyrie's playing every game, which doesn't seem like it's going to happen, I don't see how the Nets are still a championship threat after the Harden trade. But what sort of scares me is like the middle tier of the East. I think all got way, way better at the trade deadline. Thad Young going to the Raptors is a sneaky addition by them. Derek White going to the Celtics. Their defense has been basically the best in the NBA over the last month or so. Karis LeVert going to the Cavs. Everyone always criticizes Karis LeVert, says he's overrated. Man, the Cavs needed some juice off the dribble, and Karis LeVert can do that. He's a microwave scorer. I think that's a good fit of skill set and team need. 
uh, you know, you can go up and down the rest of the conference, and basically everyone but the Bulls and the Heat got better. I'm a little skeptical of how much Ibaka has left in the tank. He looks pretty washed, in my opinion, uh, but he could dial it up for the playoffs. The East is loaded. This is the best the East has been since Jordan retired, in my opinion. And a very good team in the East is going to lose a first-round series. Uh, the Bulls are going to have to try to get the best seed possible, despite all these injuries, to give themselves a favorable matchup. I think the Bulls can contend with any team in the East. Uh, but, you know, it's a very, very tough field. We have not seen anything like this in the Eastern Conference in about 30 years, 20 years at least. So you, you believe that they, they have what it takes to, to come out of the Eastern Conference? Because my, my line the whole season, and I haven't moved off it, Ricky, I'm, I'm a lifelong Bulls fan, and I'm so happy that this thing is finally moving in the right direction after some really tough years where it was hard to even follow along with this team because you, you lost all hope that, that the, the ship was going to get right. I'm real happy about the, the direction they're moving in and they're fun and they're competitive and and that's all fine and good and 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 like I said, moving in the right direction. But I just didn't think that they had what it takes to win a series with the Bucks or with the Nets. And I think now you can probably throw the Sixers into that conversation with adding James Harden to Joel Embiid who's already having an MVP caliber season. I think they can be right there with the Heat. I think they can be right there. I think they're better than the Cavs and some of these other teams that are in that middle tier of the Eastern Conference, like you said. I just don't think that they have the star power to beat a Giannis or to beat the combo of Embiid and Harden or to beat, if they can get those guys on the court, a KD and Kyrie and Ben Simmons. I just, it's, it's a star-driven league, and I feel like those teams just have that much more star power in a seven-game series. It's possible, but here's what I'll say. If you're a Bulls fan, there's really no matchup where they don't have a chance in my opinion, like we've seen the bulls enter the postseason in years past where it's like, well, certainly they have no chance to go to the NBA finals. If they can win a series, it'd be incredible. Like this year they can definitely match up with any team. I'm not saying they're going to be the favorite in every single series, but I also don't think they're like drawing dead either. Like I think that they have a chance against all these teams. The Bucks deserve to be the favorites after what they did last year. They have Giannis, who, in my opinion, is the best player alive, and Nikola Jokic are the two most talented players in the league right now, two best. Uh, Giannis is ridiculous. I mean, he's the best defensive player alive. He's got to be a top three or four offensive player, and no one can match up with him in the entire league, let alone a team that starts Javante Green, who's six foot four, power forward. Uh, so a series against the Bucks would be tough, but also the Bucks don't look as scary this year. They had a very short offseason. Remember that Middleton and Holiday played with USA Basketball. They haven't really hit their stride yet. I keep waiting for them to catch the Bulls, and the Bulls keep staying ahead of them in the standings. Uh, Philly's going to be a tough matchup for sure with Embiid, but for as in as I am on that trade from Philly's perspective, just in terms of it increasing their championship odds, there's a very good chance Harden and Embiid are not a good match. I mean, Harden looks physically a step slow a lot of people worry about like you know his mental approach or something but to me it's like the physical decline you worry about with Harden not quite as explosive as he used to be and Harden's like the worst off-ball player in the NBA Embiid holds the ball a lot so how are their games gonna match I think that is a legitimate question especially when you're integrating someone as high usage as James Harden into the team with like 25 games left before a playoff series so, I mean, the Bulls would have a very good chance against the Sixers. I don't know if they would beat them because Embiid's a tough matchup, but they certainly could beat them. To me, that would be a coin flip. 
And, yeah, I mean, I just look at everyone else. Like, I guess the Heat would be a slight favorite against the Bulls in a series, but the Bulls could certainly beat them. Uh, if the Bulls get Caruso, ball, healthy, you know, Kobe White has a 30-point game where he hits six or seven threes, that can win you a playoff game, uh, which can swing a series. So I'm pretty optimistic about the Bulls just because for as good as the East is in terms of depth, I mean, there's not a team like, you know, the Durant-Curry Warriors where it's like no one's ever going to beat this team. I think all of these teams are theoretically beatable, and I think the Bulls' best is very, very good. They've proven that time and time again this year when they've been fully healthy for those brief periods. And really, with Patrick Williams out, they haven't been healthy since, like, the third game of the season. Uh, so I think the Bulls have a chance. Are they going to be the favorites? No. But if you're a fan, all you want is the opportunity to feel like, hey, maybe my team can win. Like, we're, we do have a chance here. And I believe that's the position the Bulls are in. Yeah, I, I, might, give a, I might give them a puncher's chance, Ricky. You might, just, you might have just convinced me to give them a puncher's chance in a seven-game series against one of those teams. That's Ricky O'Donnell, editor and writer covering the NBA and the Bulls over at SB Nation. You can follow him on Twitter at SBN underscore Ricky. Appreciate the time and the insight, Ricky. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks. And Ricky O'Donnell joins me on the Circa Resort and Casino Score Hotline. Circa Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. Let's uh, get some more insight on what's going on in Major League Baseball and the current work stoppage. Kevin Goldstein of Fangrass. I'll hear from him next. Robbie Makloff with you on The Score on a Thursday night. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Robbie Makloff with you on 670 to score on a Thursday evening. Adam Studzinski on the other side of the glass will play a rousing, rousing game coming up in the final segment before I get out of here at 10 o'clock. I've been playing it quite a bit on my show up in uh, Milwaukee on 1250 AM The Fan. It's called Olympian or Random Person who I happen to know. That's coming up at about 945, but the MLB lockout drags on another day. If you haven't heard today, some possibly positive news after the two sides met for 15 minutes. Yeah, you heard that right. 
15 minutes today and then ended those discussion. It appears, according to Jeff Passan, the players and the owners will be meeting daily, possibly starting on Monday and get serious about this thing and hopefully hammer out an agreement before we lose any baseball. But Kevin Goldstein of Fangraphs joined my guys Parkins and Spiegel earlier today to talk about this lockout and whether or not there is an end in sight. Bring you that now right here on 670 The Score. Kevin, how are you doing today? I am not panicking. Oh, Just look chilling. at that. Look Just at chilling. that. Chin music is great, by the way. I always turn it off after the uh, theme music, but it's really, really good, that theme music especially. That's what I, I, I think when most people hear the, hear the theme music, they turn it off anyway. So <laughs> uh, you are not panicking. How should baseball fans at large be feeling today, Kevin? Honestly, like this is going exactly the way everyone should have expected it to go. Like that's the thing. Like no one should be surprised or shocked or anything like that at how this is going. I think, uh, you know, the second the owners locked them out, if not earlier, if not two years earlier, you should have known this was how it was going to go. We had every indication that these two sides are very far apart and genuinely don't like each other. I mean, think about 2020, the global pandemic going on. And they couldn't get along there against a common enemy to come to an agreement on how to conduct the season. It was very clear we were going to have a problem here. I think it was clear from the start, you know, the second, the the 2021 season ended, that this season was not going to start on time. It's not going to start on time. But I still think we're going to play the overwhelming majority of games. I still think you're going to see a season that gets going late April, early May, and you get 140 games or so. It's how I felt. The second this started, it's how I feel at 3.04 p.m. Okay. Well, you know, we will try to live in that reassured space, but it's easy to spin off into uh, into disaster and, and chaos thinking when we see some of the stuff we see. Um, it dumb it down for us a little bit. I know that the players are interested in expanding the salary pool for the pre-arbitration players, right? Like the young players who, oh, that's gold to have that cheap labor, right? So that's, uh, is, is MLB showing a willingness to move on that issue? MLB isn't showing a willingness to move on any issue. Yeah. You know, I, whatever you say, my answer is going to be no. MLB is not willing to move on the issue. And I think it's important to kind of, <laughs> you see these numbers and they seem really big. But in the, in the grand scheme of baseball, they're actually really small. We are really messing around the margins here. When you see the players ask for a 100 or $115 million bonus pool for pre-arbitration players, you go, oh, man, that's a ton of money. No, it's not. Divide it by 30. Now you're talking about 3 or $4 million per team. You know, it's, it's not a huge chunk of payroll in order to, to, to provide these, these younger and, and, and players who – are not and most likely never going to reach free agency a little more cash. And so it's not a ton of money. And the thing is, you got to go back in history. The last CBA, no matter how you look at it, the owners trounced the players. And now they're trying to get some of it back, and the owners are saying no. You know, they're, they're holding on to every single dollar like, like like they're Scrooge McDuck with a piece of gold here. They're just not willing to give on anything right now, and it's just become intractable. What is the biggest issue preventing movement? Money. It's, 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 come on, this is America. It's 2022. Money. Money, money, money. Um, and just the owners are making so much money. 
And I think if there's one thing we know about billionaires is billionaires like to make money. And then the one thing that's making more money. And so the, the fact that they're not willing to give at all on this, I think is a cause for frustration. I think eventually you're still going to get a deal done. But the fact that they can't even give on things that are really only going to, you know, affect maybe three, four, five percent of baseball revenue. And I, I, I use that term. It's an important term to use. Three point five percent of baseball revenue because teams are making a tremendous amount of money outside of their baseball revenue spreadsheet. You know, a great example is, again, 2020, when Ricketts claimed biblical losses. Well, it's because you just bought up half of Wrigleyville, and you took on debt for that, and so you say you have biblical losses, but all of that's going to make you a ton of money in the end. You know, when you're talking about these kind of money, you know, it, it's creative spreadsheets, and you buy a team for $500 million, you claim $10 million in losses every year, and 10 years later you sell for $2 billion. Guess what? It worked out for you. And so you know, they're just not willing to give anything on here right now. They want to keep every single victory that they've gained, even ones that are, you know, at this point, not really fair to the union. Kevin Goldstein is our guest from Fangraph's former front office executive. Is it an oversimplification to say the owners have figured out what expanded playoffs is worth to them and whatever that number is? that's the number of regular season games they're willing to miss in order to get this deal done or to get the best deal from the players? I, I think it is. I, I think the union does know that their biggest chip is the expanded playoffs. That's the one thing the owners want the most. I think the players are willing to give it to them, but they're going to want something back, and they're trying to work out what that is. I think one of the things that is the biggest maybe things that, that that your average fan doesn't realize is how the ownership structure works in the sense that if they come to an agreement on a CBA, it requires over 70% of the owners, 23 of the 30 ownership groups to approve of the CBA. So what does that mean? That means that just a small minority, a group of eight owners from so-called small market teams, there's no such thing as a small market team, but so-called small market teams can really hold this whole thing up. And so I, I think it's quite possible that they're, and I think we know this when you think about a guy like Steve Cohen who owns the Mets, who don't want any part of this. They just want to get baseball going. And frankly, they would like to spend as much as they want on baseball. You know, and, and they're like, hey, free market this stuff up. We want to do whatever we want. But the fact that we are kind of lowering the common denominator to teams that operate, you know, in an incredibly stingy way, uh, they're able to kind of define the structure of baseball for all 30 teams. It's really what's creating the problem. Here. I'm really glad you touched on this because it's a big deal that I think people are just kind of starting to realize that all it takes is eight. And it's easy to imagine, you know, a team like the Pirates, who has existed on a very low payroll and has been sitting pretty with the gravy train in terms of the revenue sharing or other teams like that. Is, is there any reason to specifically believe that is happening or does it just make sense? And that's why the theory is gaining some traction. I, I think there's every reason to believe that's happening. I think there are big market teams who want to act like big market teams and spend whatever they want and frankly should be allowed to. I, I think one of the more interesting dynamics here is just kind of, you know, this is not, you know, stepping a little back from baseball and taking like a 40,000 foot view of this. And I think this is something that the ownership group, major league baseball has really kind of taken huge missteps in is 
you know, the three of us are old enough to remember previous work stoppages um, in, in not this sport, but other ones. And, and for years, for decades, it was very much, well, the players are a bunch of spoiled millionaires, right? And the overwhelming percentage of fans just thought, oh, it's all the players' fault. They're a bunch of spoiled millionaires. They're getting paid to play a kid's sport. I play for free and blah, blah, blah. Like the vibe of this country has changed in the past 10 years and, and social media has changed and there has been a bit of a, a, a shift in how we look at things where, you know, I think there are huge parts of America who've gone, I don't know, guys, maybe the bosses are the bad guys here. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, you know, I still think if you polled 100,000 baseball fans, the owners would still, you know, quote unquote, win but it wouldn't be at nearly the advantage you know, on a PR level that they once had. And I don't think they realize that. Hmm. You know, I think if we end up, you know, obviously all of us would love to be in Arizona right now having players tell us they're in the best shape of their lives when they're not. We'd love that. But, you know, I think once we get to opening day and there's no baseball and that's when fans are going to get really mad. I don't think the owners are going to have the overwhelming support that they think they will. No, I, I think that's true. Kevin Goldstein is our guest from Fangraphs and the Chin Music podcast. Um, all right, so they're not going to move owners on arbitration. They're not going to move on getting to free agency faster. This is what they've said anyway. Um, they're not going to move on revenue sharing. Um, the information that's out there for people like you're talking about, the disparity between income, like revenue for the league, and that top of the luxury tax, the competitive balance tax, which acts as a de facto salary cap, that is not rising with revenue. You think that's a spot where the owners will eventually have to give? And if they just raise the number that each team can pay, then maybe the players will have to accept that at least they're getting that. They, they've tried to do that, but at the same time, they've done it with all of these kind of additives that but take any sort of clause out of it in the sense that, hey, we'll rise the salary cap, but, you know, or, or, but we want to institute a salary floor and, and all of this kind of stuff actually, if you do the math, decreases spending. And so it's very much like, hey, we'll give you these 50 cents and now you've got to give us half a dollar. And, and nothing gets really accomplished. It just ends up a zero-sum game. I do think they're going to give a little in the end on the arbitration piece. And I do think they're going to give something in the end on minimum salaries for these zero to three players, as well as some, some you know, like weird kind of bonus structures that allows these players to, to earn more if they play a big role. Um, so I think you're going to see some, some kind of pullbacks from the players as far as these zero to three and even arb eligible players. So if you're pre-free agency guys, I think you're going to see that. I think, if you ever thought we were going to see any sort of kind of major structural change in the economics of the game, it was, it was never going to happen. It was, it was a foolish thing. Do we need them? Yes. yes. It's not going to happen. You know, and so I think that's where you're going to see kind of the most progress made. And, and you know, once you kind of start seeing uh, actual agreements onto those kind of structures, I think that's when you'll know we're actually on a path to a deal and, and camp's opening up about seven days after a deal. Two more things from me anyway, Kevin. Uh, Speaks is very upset that they're not also talking about the issues of the game so that when the sport resumes, the product is better. I've said, man, if they can't even get this part done, and that's the part that the owners care about with the money, they'll be talking for forever, and that stuff doesn't need to be collectively bargained. Is it a mistake to not try to fix the product here through collective bargaining? I mean, I think, you know, any sort of thing that changes the product is going to have to be done through collective bargaining, but they have to get to a point where they're playing before they can worry about that stuff. I don't know if 
speaks exactly issues are with the product, but, you know, I, there are answers that, that really are right in front of us. And I think the biggest one that most people at least agree on is, is just game pace. And, and game pace is a problem. And having been at games in the minors and, and the Arizona Fall League and other places that where they have a pitch clock, it answers it all. It takes care of it completely 100%. I was at an Arizona Fall League game in October. That was an absolute disaster, guys. It was unbelievable. It had 15 walks, five errors. Both teams ended up scoring in double digits, multiple mid-inning pitching changes out of there in 257. You know why? Wow. It's a pitch clock. Hit a pitch clock, and the pitch clock does everything. And so I think the pitch clock is your answer to, you know, every single game pace problem you have. Um, I don't necessarily agree that all the strikeouts are a problem. I think that's just kind of a natural evolution of the sport, and and those kind of things go up and down, and then and batters and pitchers get advantages of different eras. And, but the game pace is a, is a problem, but the answer is you know, right in front of everyone's noses. All right, so the, did the pitch clock seem to affect pitchers' ability to throw at 100% and thereby lessen velocity, making more balls in play? No, not at all. And I, I think that's one of the key things. And, that's, you know, and the thing is, like, we're already you know, kind of getting people ready to it. You know, we have these pitch clocks in the minor leagues, so kids are coming up with a pitch clock. And it's a perfectly reasonable pitch clock. It's not rushing anybody. It's just avoiding walking off the mound and, you know, walking into a circle, you know, 17 times before throwing the next pitch. It's just keeping you on the mound and getting you ready. You have more than enough time to catch your ball, get a signal, catch your breath, and deliver. It's not a rush at all. It's just presenting the giant delays. And then you said that this is all going according to – what you expected and you think we'll get a season, it'll be 140-ish games, it would be you know, late April, early May, and this will all have gone according to plan. What? And you can, you can have me on in a month when I'm wrong. Yeah. Well, well, no, that, that's kind of what I'm asking. Like, what news item, like, what, what, what should we be looking for where you'd be like, oh, damn, this is actually worse than I thought? Right. I, I, the thing is, like, I haven't talked to anybody either – um, you know, in a front office, uh, within a union, and a few people within, you know, in New York, within Major League Baseball, who think we're on a path to a disaster, you know, as in a lost season. I don't know anyone who thinks we're on the path. What would cause that would be, you know, simply someone saying, we're not talking anymore. Like, we're not planning a proposal. We can't, we're, we're, we're that far deep. Like, the owners did you know, a weird halfway measure that was really just a PR move of, of trying to get federal mediation and things like that. But until you some, someone actually like goes to a presser, be it Tony Clark, be it Rod Manfred, said, we're done here. You know, I, I think until you see that happen, as long as you, you know talks are upcoming or someone the ball's in someone's court and they're due for a response, it's always going to be on, you know, what is it? We, the one we're on now, which is this frustratingly slow path to an agreement. Kevin, good stuff. Uh, thank you for dumbing it down um, for Jamokes like us and our fellow Jamokian <laughs> listeners. Um, I enjoy following you on Twitter as you house hunt the house with the two toilets in the bathroom. I know you didn't end up buying it, but do you have an explanation as to why there were two toilets in that bathroom? Because one was not a bidet. This is a double toilet bathroom situation. Very much so. It was a bathroom that did have two toilets in it, one that laid out perpendicular to each other, by the way. Um, and so so it was. it's a lovely house. Like, we're not going to buy it. It's a lovely house. It would take as much as it would cost for the house to fix it up to, to, to be livable. To, it's a very big place. But it 
once was kind of a, a, a small population senior center for a small group of senior citizens. And it was also once uh, kind of an opportunity house for uh, people getting their life back together. And so it's, it's had, you know, more kind of public service pieces with a, with a higher population than just myself and my wife. And so they had the multiple toilets. That was Kevin Goldstein of Fangraphs on with Parkins and Spiegel earlier today and wrapping the conversation up with toilet talk. And I, okay. He explained why, there are two toilets in the same bathroom, and that that makes sense. It was it was used for you know larger groups of people. It wasn't a single family home. But why perpendicular? Why are they perpendicular to each other? That just I'm not. That's a formation that I've never seen before in any bathroom, public or private. What is what is the reason for two toilets being perpendicular to each other? And from that entire inter- I had other things I wanted to mention, but then that completely completely threw off my track of thought with them ending the interview with toilet talk. Why perpendicular? Like in a public bathroom, there are stalls and they're all next to each other. Why? Adam, do you have any, any insight as to why two toilets would be perpendicular to each other in the same bathroom? I was just flabbergasted by you by that, which is why I left it on there. Because <laughs> I feel like it's important information that we need to get to the bottom of. And I don't know why there wasn't further follow-up. No. Any, any, any bathroom that has multiple toilets in it, they're, they're in a row. and They're facing the same direction. And why if, on and earth? And if they are across from each other, I've been in bathrooms where there's a lot of stalls, but there's, there's stalls. So you're not like face-to-face <laughs> with the, the person across, with, across very, from you. That's very strange. It's very, very strange. And I honestly, unless unless there is a stall kind of situation going on, there's no way. There's no way. And that's and if there is, and that's important information we're missing here. True. Yes. But I, I have I have a condition known as shy bladder. I can't even I can't even go if there's somebody else in the in the in the bathroom with me, much less sitting on a toilet that's facing me and perpendicular to me. While we're both doing our... I do not need to make eye contact with anybody while I'm doing that. I think the only, the, the only situation I would be remotely comfortable would be with... A, a, so one of my really good friends. And even then, I, I don't think either of us would be able to stop laughing. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, there's just... There's just no way. I saw something... And God, we're off on a tangent now. And we, sh- we should be talking about all the, all the good nuggets of baseball wisdom and about the collective bargaining agreement that he just gave us there in that 15 minutes. But now I'm sidetracked. Did you see a couple of months ago, you know, the singer Megan Trainer? you know, are you familiar with Megan Trainer? I'm familiar with the name. I know next yeah, to nothing all, about her music. That's all I am too, okay. really. Okay. Um, her and her husband, fiance, they bought a house that has two toilets in the bathroom and they're literally right next to each other and facing each other. So a couple can literally do everything together. That's, everything. Uh, That's pass. super weird, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm all about loving relationships and, you know, not wanting that person to leave your side. But there, there are some times where it's okay for well, there's them a to line. leave your side. There's a line that needs to be drawn. And, Abs- and that absolutely. is the line. <laughs> That's codependence if I've ever heard of it. Right after this, Adam Studzinski, are you an Olympics person? Are you a fan of the Olympic Games. I would consider myself a casual fan, yes. I, I watch. You're exactly the person that I'm looking for. To play Olympian 
a random person who I happen to know. That's next. Rami Makhlouf with you on a Thursday night right here on 670 The Score. Ah, yes. The prestigious, illustrious Winter Games underway in China. Rami Makhlouf with you on The Score on a Thursday evening in time now for a game that's taken Milwaukee by storm. Absolutely taken Milwaukee by storm on my afternoon show on 12:50 a.m. The fan. In fact, it's been so popular, so fun. I decided to bring it here to 6:70 to score in the final few minutes I have with you on a Thursday night. Adam Stadzinski, my producer, on the other side of the glass this evening. Fine job this evening, young man. And you said before the break that you are a casual fan of the Olympics, right, Adam? Yeah, I wouldn't what say the- uh, I, there's certain things that I make I make sure that I'm going to watch, but okay, yeah. The, the not, point of Olympian, a random person I happen to know, is that nobody's really an Olympics fan. You just pretend you are because they tied patriotism into it, even though it has nothing to do with your patriotism. So I play this game to prove that nobody really cares or likes what's going on out there. So I'm just going to give you some names, Adam Studzinski, and you tell me if these are Olympians or random people who I happen to know. First name on the list, Sam Schmitz. Sam Schmitz, Olympian... A random person who I happen to know. I think that's a random person you happen to know. That's my producer on my show. Up Nailed in it. That, is, that is a random person who I happen to know. Jamie Anderson. Jamie Anderson. Olympian? A random person who I happen to know, Adam Studzinski. I feel like I've heard that name, so I'm going to go with Olympian. Wow, you're two for two. All right. Okay. Okay. Next up, Nate Abshire, Nate Abshire, Olympian, a random person who I happen to know. I have no idea on this one, so I'm going to say Olympian. Mm, no, that's who I'll be opening for at the Laughing Tap this weekend. In wrong, 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 <laughs> wrong, 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 <laughs> Get your tickets at laughingtap.com. All right, next up on Olympian... A random person who I happen to know. Oh, that's too popular a name. I'm not going to pick that one. Um, Let's see here. AJ Grill. AJ AJ Grill. Grill? AJ Grill. Olympian? A random person who I happen to know. That feels like a random person you happen to know. Yeah, that's that's just my buddy. That's just my buddy up here in Milwaukee. It's a fun game, though, isn't it? Yeah, I like that. I wish we had more time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'll be back next week. I don't know if you're my producer, uh, what but I'll be back next week. week and we, can, we can still play, even though I think the Olympics will be over. I don't care, but I think the Olympics will be over, but we can still play if you're my producer next Friday night. My thanks to Bruce Levine, score baseball analyst. He joined me earlier, as well as Ricky O'Donnell, editor and writer over at SB Nation covering the Bulls and the NBA. If you missed either of those, Go to Odyssey, your Odyssey app, or 670thescore.com. Thanks to Adam Studzinski on the other side of the glass and all of you for listening and contributing to the show this evening. Rami Makhlouf saying thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next Friday at 6, right here on Chicago's Home for Sports Talk, 670 The Score. We 
really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.